prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again as we are gathered in a beautiful day and that has given us life and breath that we can be together again. Lord, we thank Thee that as we gather in this time that though we may be few in number in comparison to the, the potential for many more in the world to be drawn by Thy Word and to gather to worship Thee. We pray, Father, that we may take this time seriously and that we may consecrate ourselves as we approach Thy Word this morning to reflect upon Thy truth and allow it to speak to us in, in a way that is very personal and, and yet general enough to, to reach the needs of all that are present. We ask Thee, Father, to be with us now and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord told us, I'd like to, to read from the Gospels found in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. And through verse 27. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a messenger after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in, in very little, hath thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest thou that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. I have read through verse 27. Let us arise for prayer. O Lord God, Almighty, Holy, Just, Perfect in Thy being, In wisdom, in power, And yet merciful and gracious, Abundant in goodness of truth, Yet by no means will clear the guilty, But there has been found a sacrifice, O Lord, That whosoever will may come, And avail himself 
of the pardon of the grace that is available in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. What a great offering. What an opportunity to accept but also to reject. Oh Lord, may there be none that already has made an effort to be here, reject the holy word as it goes forth, but may ponder on it and consider it what it says. For O oh Lord, thy holy word which is proclaimed in this time, inviting and telling, O oh Lord, the judgment is to come, will one day judge. And out of their own mouth, everyone will be judged, O oh Lord. And no excuses will count. Impress this upon us, dear Father, that we may realize that we need to humble ourselves before an almighty God who is everywhere and so powerful, yet can be ignored for those that want to ignore him, O oh Lord. A God that gives witness of himself in his creation and the witnesses that he has left here and that he raises up time and again, O Lord, and thy servants that proclaim thy holy word. Thy word, O Lord, which in the beginning spoke and it was so and will be also in eternity. O Father in heaven, impress this upon our hearts, O Lord, that we may consider our purpose here upon this earth, that we may consider why there is so much misery why there is so much hate, so much sickness, so much death in this world, O oh Lord. And yet everybody knows and what is good. And yet, O oh Lord, they don't want to acknowledge the giver of him, of these things. Dear Father, do the look in favor upon us and be thou with us as we are gathered up by the Holy Word. Inspire the brother to speak thy word in simplicity, in truth, that it may go forth. And may we together worship thee, O Lord, in spirit and truth. For thou hast said thou dost seek such that come to thee. And those, O Lord, that feel downcast and feel miserable, O Lord, because of conviction, may they realize that the word also says that those that are of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, O Lord, are acceptable unto thee. And thou wilt not cast them out, but will work with them to the saving of their souls. In thy mercy, deal thou with us, O Lord. Do thou above we are able to ask, dear Father. We thank thee for the many blessings that we have received this past week, for thy care, the protection that we can be again here. We thank thee for the church building that is proceeding, dear Father. And we thank thee for safety thus far and pray that it may continue, that no one gets hurt, dear Father. And that we be blessed truly by this effort, dear Father, and that thou be honored through it all. Dear Father, be with those that cannot gather with us, that are hindered in some way, O Lord. Be with those that struggle, O Lord, with great temptation, that they may realize that they can overcome if they humble themselves and plead and cry out to thee, dear Father, for thou wilt be touched by such, O Lord. In thy mercy, deal thou with us and bless us, for we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a parallel, not quite parallel, but very close in content, Uh, account of the same found in Matthew 25 which hopefully later on I I will touch base this this account that Jesus brought to his disciples this parable, this story that um, had a purpose and a message came at a time when Jesus was uh, to reveal himself as the one who would be lifted up in the cross as he said, that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And it is a parable that came at a time when his disciples 
were unable to see that, that which was going to be fulfilled in the suffering Messiah. For me, at least, it is interesting in the beginning of this parable, in verse 11, that that Jesus resorted to bringing this story to their ears as they pondered upon themselves and in their own heart, his disciples, thinking that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And we know from other scriptures in the New Testament, other portions of the scriptures, that in many ways the disciples were altogether ignorant of what was really going to happen in Jerusalem. Even though he had mentioned it to them, that he was to suffer and to to be despitefully treated by the, the, uh, the Jews to be killed and to rise again, and yet they were unable to understand that, even though those things were said to them directly. They really believed that Jesus Christ was going to deliver them from the rule of the Roman law, restore the kingdom of the old kingdom, the the kingdom that they knew from the Old Testament, and they anticipated that as they were in Jerusalem. The count, the parallel account in Matthew 25, he's already in Jerusalem. It's a little different. Um, but here Jesus Christ presents the story to them that is real food for thought. If they were listening to the parable, and they did, in many many instances, they listened more to his parables than they did to anything they said he said directly to them. Uh, in, in because of the parables, like like any story, catches your attention, and and you think about it. In this parable, Jesus Christ decided to address their misconception of what was about to happen when he was in Jerusalem, and he is. And he begins with this idea that there is a certain nobleman that goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he paints the picture that there is a man either of, of, of noble birth or, or someone who has a sta- attained a certain stature of nobility that is, is leaving the place that he's currently at to receive a kingdom for himself. So wherever he currently is, he... He hasn't received the kingdom where he is, but he's going to go somewhere else. And wherever that place will be, those people there will acknowledge him and, and give to him a kingdom that will also include the, the, situ- the place where he is currently situated. And this creates for us and for the disciples a curiosity. You, you immediately when you hear this parable, you have to think. You have to stop and think. Okay, what, what is really happening here? Why did he start with this scenario? So it catches our attention, and we can see that that um, he is speaking of himself. We know that Jesus, when he died and rose again, he went to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, as if to have accomplished his mission here on earth. And when time would come, he would return again the second time. To as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And at his return, this parable is speaking, he will then deal with his servants, those who were following him. But in between his time when he goes to receive a kingdom and when he comes back, he calls his servants 
and entrust them with responsibilities, or in this case, specifically, he entrusts them with money. So he has a kingdom, he has wealth, and the wealth that he has, he wishes to um, have a gain or return or an investment in that wealth. And he entrusts that wealth to his servants, those that are... The word servant here really is literally slave. So it is someone that is subject to his his uh, authority and that is working for him. Now, in this particular parable, there's only, he it says that he calls ten servants. If we were to read the, the similar parallel, not exact parallel, there are differences in that parallel, that parable that we see in Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents, and it says there in verse 2014, For the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. So just so that we have an understanding, in that scenario there are three servants that he calls, and he gives them different amounts of talents. The word talent there. Is, is another word for money, but specifically in that time, it's the, it was one talent was the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii. And just so you would get an idea, one denarius, which is the singular, would be the equivalent of one day's wage. So he gave, by giving just one talent, he gave a person, one of the servants, 6,000 days worth of wage. So that this is, we're not talking about a small amount of money. You could just picture how much money was entrusted on these servants. So when we, when we were to look at Matthew 25, 14, and it says he gave five, unto one he gave five talents, that's 30,000 days worth of wages. So just picture that. This is, this is a huge sum of money. And unto another he gave two, and unto one he gave one. So, right away, when we picture this amount of money, we realize that, um, like you and, my, and, 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 and me, if we were to be entrusted with a great sum of money, uh, there would be a sense of, of, of urgency and probably fear, you know, that we would not misuse or waste that amount of money. And also, there would be a sense of, um, perhaps, humility, depending on what our nature is, because... That great sum of money requires us to be very, very careful. And God, or this, in this particular case, the, the nobleman or the certain ruler who entrusted us with such amount of money um, is counting on us. Is counting on us. He has entrusted a great wealth of his kingdom or of his, of his wealth to us. In the case of the parable in Matthew 19, there are ten servants and they're given money, and they're asked to occupy, or basically to become busy with that money to, in order to generate return. So this is a very clear black and white uh, parable for us. You are entrusted with money that is not yours, but it is your, your master's, or, your, or your, the one whom you are responsible to. You are expected to invest that money, work with that money, in order to bring return to your master, to bring interest. The minimal thing you can do is invest that money in the bank or put it in the bank and hope that the, the basic interest of a bank 
will uh, will give some interest to that money, and so that when your master comes back, you've at least made some gain on that money. But the complete implication here is that we are expected to do something with what is entrusted in, with us and to us. So, as the as the nobleman leaves this this area that he is currently living in to receive a kingdom far away, that the the citizens of that area um, rebel against his authority for all intents and purposes, and they sent a messenger to to the to to the man to tell him that we don't we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you. It says here we will not have this man to reign over us. And that so we're given and they're nothing more given to us. So we've got a picture here that ten servants are given a huge sum of money to work with and to, to labor with to bring a return. But among among that citizenship in that area where this nobleman lives uh, the, the general population does not want him to be ruler over them. And so even before he goes away to, to, to gain a kingdom for himself, he, uh, he is already rejected by his citizens. So he comes back. It says, And it came to pass that when he, when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded his servants, these servants, to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So then here at this point we begin to, and, and we've heard this parable many times before, just like on the one in Matthew 25. The, the point here is that we have those who are given money, they're given valuable goods, and they're expected to work with it. And the one who had received, uh, everyone in this case had received um, 10 pounds, or one pound, each each ten each of the ten servants received one pound, and one of the servants was able to gain ten pounds with that one pound. And the master says, uh, "Well," and tells him that that now that he is a, he is a king or has a kingdom, he has received a kingdom. He can give whom he will, as he will, uh, authority over his kingdom. And he chooses to give the one who labored with one pound and gained ten pounds authority over ten cities. And the one that had one pound and gained five, he gave authority over five cities. So, why did Jesus describe this parable the way he did? And why did he, why did he, why did he decide to do it in order to respond to the fact that the disciples were thinking that the kingdom would immediately appear? Well, you and I can can meditate and, and contemplate and think about the various reasons. One of the reasons, clearly, that Jesus was bringing these parables to his disciples was that there was there was going to be a period in their lives, and it was going to happen very soon, when he would depart to receive a kingdom, in which God was expecting him them to work, to work with what he was going to entrust them with. And not only was he going to expect them to work, but he was painting a picture for them that that the labor that you will work with what I give you will have a reward. And that reward will be proportional to how much you work. And we may say, well, how how is that? We, we We have a picture sometimes 
or maybe better, it's more precise or exact to say that the world has a picture that God is the all-loving and that he really, in the end, he's going to be fair with all of us and he's going to, um, he's going to understand me. You know, we have this sometimes picture of those who, who are not necessarily going to church or are not necessarily committing their lives to God, but they have this perception, this, this idea that God is, is, a, is a loving God and that He recognizes everything they've done in their lives, the fact that they are good people, that they give of themselves, that they're, they're good citizens in their, in, in their country and so forth, and that in the end God will see all that and will take that into account. But in this particular parable, Jesus is painting a picture of God that he is going to reward directly proportional to the level of effort that you put in to what was committed to you. There's no other way to describe this. This is a very this is a direct relationship. It is directly related to the effort put in to what was entrusted into your hands. So much so that if if you work very hard with what is entrusted with you, you will receive a reward that is proportional to that level of work. And if you work less hard, but still work, you will also receive a reward, but that reward will also be proportional to the level of effort you put in. And so, we see here in this particular parable that there are differences. God is telling us that when, when Jesus Christ comes the second time, to claim his own, particularly his, the bride, the church, that there will be rewards given to believers. And rewards are outside of salvation. Salvation is something none of us work for. It is, it is a free gift, and it comes by faith and by the death of Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood and the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. But the rewards that come with service are directly proportional to our effort that we put in. And so there will be differences. There will be those in the kingdom of God that will have more rewards and they will be visible than those that worked less. Now, I don't know how that will play out in terms of how we will understand that because the Bible tells us in Revelation that, you know, that there will be no tears, that there will be no sorrow, but, but there is a time in between there is the, we believe there's a period when, when, when Jesus Christ, if we were to read the scripture, and some may, may disagree, but in my, at least in my understanding is that there is a period of time where, where Jesus Christ will judge the earth, he will reign with a, with a rod of iron, which means that all disobedience will be dealt with immediately, that there will be actually survivors of the nations of this earth, you can just read Zacharias, whom, whom will have to come to Jerusalem to, to, to worship, and if they don't, they will, they will, they will have to suffer consequences. And so, this picture here tells us that those that believed in God and were entrusted with, with, um, His goods to work will have authority in that, in that period of time. It is commonly known as the millennium, a thousand-year reign. When and I don't under, and I don't really know how that works. There will be no salvation per se. There won't be 
there will be people from the from this world that will not have been completely annihilated during the end times, during the, the God's wrath upon the earth, and yet they will be under subjection to to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, who will have the center of his kingdom in Jerusalem, and who will have presumably the Christians in in all those that believed in him and worshipped him and were faithful to him to the very end, who will have varying roles and authorities within this 1,000-year reign. Some of them will actually rule over kingdoms, over cities, over nations. And that's, that's, a, that's a tall order. That's, that's a large expectation. So for those of us who, who see this as black and white, there not only can we feel, because we don't want to be motivated by gain. You know, our employers at work or wherever else may may motivate their employees by remuneration, by salary, or by hourly wages, or by whatever. But we, we are not motivated that way as Christians. We're motivated to serve God out of love for what He has done for us. But there are rewards. There are rewards. Then we come to the servant who was a servant of this noble man. They don't tell us anything more than that. He was numbered among the ten. So we could, we could rightfully say that from, from a servant perspective, if we are to define him as someone who obeys the authority of his master, we would say that he was like the rest of the ten who were given... Uh, pounds or the goods of his master in order to to work with. But this servant was different. And for whatever reason, he had an attitude or opted out for an attitude that was contrary to the other servants that were identified in this parable. He had a picture of his master which was very unlike what we know of Jesus Christ and of God. In fact, it is, a, it is a distorted picture of his master. It says that, um, first of all, we know that this servant didn't do anything with what he had. Now, we know we've heard before, I think I remember it was preached in, in our, back in our old Western Road Church, that in those days, they weren't, really, there weren't a lot of banks like what we have today in every street corner where you can deposit your money and you have so much you know, insurance and security towards that deposit. Uh, and also, those are all regulated by the, the, the government as far as um, how much capital is behind the banks. So you could feel safe, at least in Canada, that if you put your money in the bank, it's going to be there when you need it. In those days, they didn't have that. And I remember the sermon once, the brother said that in many cases, it was natural for people to, to go out in the middle of the night or at a time when it was not so obvious and and in their field and dig up and hide their money and hide it underneath a big rock or something like that because there was very little protection. So that that what this servant did was not was not unusual for him. And was not unusual in that most people were actually hiding their money or protecting their money that they had uh, while it was not in use, while it was not being invested in a safe place. So he put his money in a safe place and no one could 
could condemn him for doing that. But that is not what his master required him to do. His master required him to work with that money and to invest it. He hid it, laid it up, kept it safe, and then he tells the master that, I did this because I feared you, because you're a harsh man. Austere man is a harsh man, a hard man. And, and he goes on to say, describe why you are a hard man. You're a hard man because you, you take what, uh, what you basically reap where you haven't sown. You exact, you require of man um, beyond what is reasonable. And because of that, I hid your money. Uh, and then it says here, um, then the, the master says, and this is where, and I wonder what Jesus was trying to say here, whether he had a specific message to his disciples. Remember, this message was to his disciples primarily. We have the benefit of the scripture. We can read it now and think about whether it applies to ourselves. But maybe they didn't understand this fully. And it was for generations to come. The Master says, as it was said in the prayer this morning, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee. Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee. So, the picture we have here is that the servant was given responsibilities. And he was expected to work. He was expected to bring a return to the Master. The servant was lumped together and categorized with the rest of the other servants who also worked with what they were given. But this servant was unique. This servant had his own attitude. And in his attitude, he chose to to, to paint a picture of his master, to, to describe a master in a way that was unlike him. Now we know that this is true because, because the master gave ten, the authority of over, over ten cities to the, to the servant who, pro, who provided ten, ten talents with that one talent. And he gave five, the authority over five cities. So clearly we see that the master is more than generous. So this picture that this single master, the single servant painted or drew of his master was incorrect. And the reason why it was incorrect is because it was basically an excuse. It was an excuse for not working with what was given to him. In Matthew 25, the other similar parallel, the picture that is given to us is that when the one servant comes, then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. In that parable, it gives us, it gives us a picture, it gives us the reason why this servant did what he did. He was wicked and that's a really harsh description and I wonder what the disciples thought when they heard that how they whether they had perhaps a tingle of fear in themselves whether they all of a sudden became a little bit more, more sober remember these disciples sometimes argued along the way about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven they were just waiting for this kingdom to appear 
and then and then they were you know sort of jostling for position as to who would have the most prominent position in this new kingdom. And Jesus knew all these things. He knew how immature they were, how they didn't really understand what was happening. Not only did they not understand what they were ha- what was hap- what was going to happen, but they were so immature as far as their own responsibilities. And maybe he needed to 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 plant a seed of fear and respect. And maybe he needed to highlight some some things that were inside their heart. We know that if they were jostling for position, clearly they were they were selfish and they were also proud. And we don't want to say, well, the disciples of Jesus Christ were selfish and proud, but they were not converted. They had been with Jesus for almost three years. They had seen his work, but that doesn't mean that they were converted. That doesn't mean they were they were regenerated and transformed, and we know they weren't. So we were able to see certain things come out in them. But this speaks to us. This speaks to today's generation. It speaks to the Christians today who are entrusted to work with the faith that has been given to them and anything else until Jesus Christ returns. And that within this spectrum of ten servants, Jesus Christ only chose to pick three to highlight a point. One, he chose one who was a star performer. One who was an overachiever, who, who took his, his conviction seriously, the, the, the entitlement of, of, the, of his master's goods, and dedicated himself to, to gain the greatest return for that. And for that, he was going to be awarded greatly. And then there's the one sort of in between, where he took, out of the maximum of ten, he was able to gain five. So we, we also have a picture of someone who's faithful, very diligent, and who is equally rewarded, at least proportional to his labor. And I believe the, the, the middle person that is chosen here is simply to give us the indication that it is proportional. It is proportional to our labor, and that is our choice. In the other chapter, 25, it says that each of them are given certain amount of talents, which is also money, but based on their ability. So it gives us a, a little clearer picture. Because if I look across the room here, I know that everybody here is different. If I were to, if I take everybody in this room here and, and put them in, in, a, in an exam room and give them, a, let's say, a, a mathematical exam, I will have a whole distribution of results because everybody's abilities will be different. Or if I go out and ask them to, to you know, erect a wall in a new church, everybody will have different abilities. So we, we all have different, and those are very simple analogies. But when it comes to working for God, when it comes to being faithful in what God has entrusted us with, and this doesn't mean, and I don't want, and I really don't want us to misunderstand this, this doesn't mean that you're going to sweep the the, the kitchen the hardest, or you're going to cook the most when when we have an affair in the church. What this means is that with what God places in your life, with the situation you are in, whether it's your economic, your social economic situation, your health, whether it is um, burdens that God gives you, whatever the situation is in your life, God's picture here is telling us that he, that he understands your situation and yet he, ex- he can give you the grace to excel in your situation. In whatever your situation is, God's grace is more than sufficient for you to excel. To excel and be triumphant in your walk as a Christian.
And while I understand that this parable is directly to do with money, we know that, yes, for some of us, wealth came easy, or we were born into wealth, and we can read in Timothy how Apostle Paul says, you know, those that desire to be rich fall into hurtful lusts and snares. And then it says, but those that are rich, so there's a distinction. There's those that desire to be rich and will go all out of the way because they see others that are rich and want to have the same thing. And in the pursuit of riches, they, they hurt their souls. They pierce themselves through with many temptations, with many issues. But then there are those that are born rich. And don't have those issues. And God tells them that those that are born rich should be should depend on the Lord, not trust in uncertain riches, and that they should work with those riches. But that's not what this is necessarily saying here. It can be one of those scenarios, but the general scenario is that with that each of us are entrusted with abilities and faith. And, and situation, really it's situation, the situation you are in today, the life you're in, the marriage you're in, the workplace you're in, the church you're in, all those things are situations that God has placed you within this, this church, within this body of believers, and God expects you to excel through His grace in that situation. And the choice is altogether yours. It is altogether yours. And the last person whom Jesus Christ picked within this body of servants is someone who had the wrong attitude, made the wrong choice. In 1 Corinthians 11, I believe it's 11, chapter 1. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Apostle Paul says something here. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And in, I believe it's in Ephesians. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6 verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. I just want to make one comment here with with what is what has been said. Each of us have a choice of what we're going to do in, in, with the time given to us. That choice is not influenced by any external motivators. It is it is influenced entirely by what's in your heart. It is in, in influenced intrinsically, internally, by your perception of God by your perception of God and your understanding. Remember, this man portrayed that he had a perception of his master. It was incorrect. And it was probably a lie. Um, But each of us, each of us have a perception of God. And each of us will be expected to make sure that understanding of God is correct. And that's one of the reasons why we come to church. That is one of the reasons why we read the Word of God. That's one of the reasons why we pray and allow the Spirit to speak to us because we have to fine-tune and realign that understanding of God and ourselves before God. I read those those scriptures that talk about following. The word follower there, the original word in Greek, means to imitate. 
It means to imitate. And we are, the best way to realign our understanding of Jesus Christ and of God is to imitate the Master. Apostle Paul said, imitate me, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. Uh, then we read the other scriptures that we should imitate, we should be imitators of the church. It's like they, like in, in, uh, uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament Gentile churches were imitators of the church in Jerusalem because they also suffered like they did. And we are to imitate God as dear children of God. We're to imitate, we're to imitate Him in the sense that we are His children. So we have, we imitate, and we are to imitate each other. As we, as each of each of us follow God, or each of us imitate <coughs> Jesus Christ, we have the church as the standard. We have the Scripture as the standard, and those are all examples that we can use to help realign our understanding. The last group of people that were described in this parable were those that were his city, that were the citizens of that country that rejected him. And that parable was strictly speaking about Jesus being rejected by his own people, by the Jews. And because they were the ones that rejected him before he left to receive a kingdom. So we have a responsibility and we have a task. And the choice is altogether ours, what we do with that. But whatever we do, we will receive rewards that are proportional to what we did. And it was altogether ours, ours to do. And the Lord out to work whatever plan. I really believe that the scripture that we read today is so applicable to every one of us, from from old to, to, to young. And it really, it doesn't matter how long we've been in the faith or not. I believe that every one of us is, is living out a situation that is not necessarily part of our doing. In other words, we are. Apostle Paul talks about you know if you if you were if you came to Christ as a servant, well you know you're you're also a servant of the Lord. But if you you come as a free man, you know use it. And if you can be free, make make you know take advantage of it. Whatever state that we're in, that we come into into Christ, that way we should remain. And he was making reference to being a servant or a slave or, or being circumcised and so forth, or being single and not married. Um, but every one of us, as a Christian, is in a situation. We have, we have situations. We have trials, difficulties, temptations, burdens, responsibilities. All those things that are before us. Every one of us, and. Every day, almost every minute, every moment of your life, in my life, I have a choice. Always have a choice of how I'm going to be, how I'm going to act, respond to a situation in front of me. And the decisions I make are directly linked to my attitude, to the way, what I'm going to do with, with the time given to me. When you think about the servant who, who hid his napkin, hit the, the, sorry, hit the, the pound in a napkin and, and put it underneath the ground... You have to ask yourself then, what else did he do with his time? The other ten servants were busy working, trying to get a return on the investment. They were busy making business deals. So what was the other servant doing? And if you look at your own lives, if we look at ourselves, 
when we're not busy for God, what are we actually doing? And you find that if you're if you're not focusing on furthering His will, then what do we occupy our time with? And that that is a sobering thought. And so that's why we will be held accountable because we make the choices that we make. Nobody makes the choices for us. We make those choices. And to, to work diligently with what's given to us really means to be faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness in whatever situation we're in. Faithful to show God that we trust Him, that we believe in Him, that we walk humbly before Him all the time. And that is, that is what is required of us. And the more we do that, the more situations are given to us. The more talents, the more pounds are given to us because we show ourselves to be more faithful. It's sort of a multiplicative, multiplicative approach that God does with us. He, he looks to see how faithful we are in the situation we're in. And the more faithful we are, the more He gives us opportunities to be faithful. And the opposite is true. The less we do for Him, the more we show ourselves to be slothful or occupy and crouch out Him, God, out of our lives by occupying ourselves with things that are not really of any long-term benefit to the kingdom, to His kingdom, then we, we're not given opportunities. In fact, God then has to correct us. God has to bring upon us situations to, to, to draw our attention back to Him and to realign our perception of Him. And God does this every day. It's a work in progress. He's continually doing this in our lives because He wants us. He wants us to, to experience the joy of service. This concludes our service. Amen.